This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. If you drive a car, if you sit in a car with someone else driving it, if you've had to pull into a gas station lately, you will have noticed gas prices have gone up this week. Uh, different amounts in different places for sure. That's what happens. But anywhere right now, as I've seen it from four to seven cents a liter. Now it gets very confusing after this because some places had gas available for about a dollar fifteen a liter this afternoon. They're up now up to the lowest price in Hamilton is about dollar nineteen, but within the past twenty four hours it was up to a dollar thirty four point nine a liter, and experts say it's going up more over the course of this summer. Possibly another fourteen percent is what some are saying gas prices are going to increase by. Now, of course, this is what every single person who owns a car hates. We know we're going to have to pay. We know gas is part of the program, but we hate that this is seemingly so out of control and to most of us seems so random and so at the whim of whatever winds are blowing. What is going on? Well, I know one person who knows this. His name is Dan McTague. He's the senior petroleum analyst at gasbuddy.com. He joins us now. Dan, thanks for doing this today. Oh, uh, thanks for having me here, Scott. Uh, by the way, have you ever noticed that the media only calls on you when gas prices are going up and everyone's angry? <laughs> I do tweet and let people know <laughs> when it's dropping, but uh, hardly anybody pays attention. I got to tell you, though, I probably did more interviews in the past month than I have in the past uh, two or three years. When it's below a dollar twenty, no one really cares. Uh, that's right. It's a little self-acknowledgement of our foibles and our proclivities <laughs> here in the media. I, I'll give you that. But, but pri- prices are up, though, and are going up, and a lot of people are saying the same thing. What is going on, and why are we paying so darn much now for gas? Oh, where do you start? Uh, well, let's go through. Okay, <laughs> let's start with that. There are there have been. I'll I'll jump in, and we'll break this down because there have been numerous things pointed to. Let me go through a list and maybe this is the easiest way to do it and you can comment on these things. First of all, we know that the loony is a huge contributor to the price of gas. How does, our loony is down, what does that mean? Since 1984, Canadians uh, very heavily voted in favor of uh, having a international price for our commodities rather than a made-at-home price. In other words, make up whatever price you want to help Canadians. They made a very, very uh, dramatic decision, and we get uh, international prices for all of our products that we sell or make or build, whatever the case may be. Uh, So we have to pay in U.S. dollars for our own fuel, whether we like it or not, whether it's made here, imported here, or whether it's uh, taken from elsewhere. It means that uh, the Canadian dollar, which is trading today at about 126 pennies to replace one U.S. dollar, probably gives us a disadvantage of some 13 or 14 cents a litre. In other words, uh, if the dollar were on the same level, at par with the greenback, you'd be paying 13, perhaps even 14 cents a litre less than what you're paying today. So that's critical. People understand how that relationship works. They also have to understand that uh, a good part of why the currency, our Canadian dollar, is trading as weakly as it is, despite the fact that uh, oil has gone up, what, 14 bucks a barrel since last year, is primarily because, and I know some people don't like to hear this, but they have to understand this is how it works, uh, it's because we are not able to sell our oil at reasonable world prices for for our uh, crude. So we're giving it away for about a $26 premium. I'm looking at Canadian oil today at $40 a barrel when everyone else, including Venezuela, is getting about 60 to 66 That's one of the main reasons why it's expensive. The second, of course, the last time we saw prices this high, and you have to go back now to July 12, 2014, uh, the last time you saw prices, tomorrow's price, which should be $1.35.9. Uh, the last time we saw that, uh, we also uh, didn't have uh, a, uh, 
uh, carbon tax of four and a half cents a liter, which is you know basically cap and trade here in Ontario. And of course, we didn't have refineries uh, picking up an extra nickel more than what they were charging back then. So refiners are making money. Governments are making money. Uh, the money changers, of course, are looking at the uh, same you know element. Uh, pipeline protests continue thanks to various organizations funded, well-funded outside of Canada, the Tides, Greenpeace and the Sierra Club. But it's all contributing to costing you a lot more at the pumps. Let's go back for one second, because there was just something you raised with the talking about the loonie, about how we voted to have international um, currency as our as our value for this. Could that change? Could we vote? Why, why would we not then? If this is costing us a lot of money, why would a government not want to vote or someone vote to change this? We're an export-based economy. Uh, we do far better at exporting all of our goods, services, and resources uh, than we would uh, you know, contenting ourselves with having a made-at-home price for our fuel. That was a national energy program, and although it was well-intentioned, it, uh, it virtually brought the country to a standstill. It also uh, likely contributed to, forget the constitutional standoff that ensued, but it also uh, brought us very, very close to the point where the country almost saw an economic collapse. Investment left, and investment can go anywhere around the world. We live in a world of trade, uh, of open markets, and uh, uh, international prices for all of our commodities is the way our economy works, and it's one of the reasons we have enjoyed, uh, relatively speaking, uh, greater prosperity now than at any point in the past. And we can't do both? There, there's no option for a no. Canadian company to sell it in Canadian dollars to Canadians and elsewhere for other stuff? Who would take a loss? I mean, the fact is, if I were to sell my gasoline at a loss, I would wind up out of Fair business. enough. Fair enough. No, that, that makes sense. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Dan McTeague, Senior Petroleum Analyst at GasBuddy.com, about these rising gas prices and what's going on. And the loony has a part in this, and uh, carbon taxes have a part of this, and taxes and other taxes. And Dan, just before the break, you mentioned the thing that I know a lot of Canadians are paying attention to right now, because it really is one of the dry, one of the big stories at this moment, and that is the Trans Mountain Pipeline, the Kinder Morgan Pipeline, and whether it happens or not. What impact would that, if that thing stalls, if that doesn't go through, if that becomes a dead issue, and we don't know where that's going yet, what impact would that actually have, if any, in Ontario on gas prices? Well, in terms of uh, complete uh, removal, nothing happens and everybody goes home, uh, you're lucky. You're likely looking at uh, higher uh, or lower value for the Canadian dollar. Um, it's pretty clear that uh, we would be stranded in terms of our ability to sell any more oil than we currently uh, provide. You can't really use much more rail. Uh, there really isn't other any any other alternative. So look for likelihood that the Canadian dollar would uh, continue to to lag, and that will continue to, uh, you know, I suspect uh, add a premium at the pumps. Um, we would be price takers globally. Uh, so even more severely uh, impacted by, you know, things like we've seen the past week here, geopolitical issues, which are now back in vogue, you know, missiles being launched in, uh, towards Riyadh that are knocked down or, you know, tensions over uh, retaliation over uh, Bashar al-Assad's uh, regime in Syria. All of these things, uh, you know, would be far more impactful on Canadians than ever before. And we would continue to import a lot more of our oil to meet our own domestic needs or have those needs met to a greater extent by uh, by Americans, uh, especially if refineries here uh, begin to succumb to the uh, ever-increasing carbon tax regime and emissions controls that the Canadian government is uh, likely to impose on all emitters over the next several years. It's just not a pretty situation, and if you don't like the prices you're paying now, you're not going to like what's in store over the next four or five years. 
you are someone who knows governance very well. Uh, this is a world that you are very familiar with. And we hear governments of all stripes talk about how they understand the pain that the people are going through and how they don't like paying high taxes and, and how they don't really want to hurt people with these things. And yet when I look at the federal government and what can probably to this point only be described as platitudes towards that pipeline and you look at the taxes and everything else, do governments really, do they really care about what people pay in, ta- in, in gas prices or is that just what you have to say when you're in government? It's, it's a big deal and it's becoming an even greater deal. The public, public's awareness is far greater now than at any point, say, in the past few years because we are you know, leveling, leveling off at prices not seen in four years, but I think we're also coming to the quickly to the point that the and I have some experience as you point quite rightly pointed out with the GST, the carbon tax and higher prices uh, caused by carbon taxes and the lurch towards uh, green energy and things like that, which have failed, uh, are looking a whole lot more like the D- GST debate of the last twenty years, and uh, the people are not buying into what elites and what executives uh, and what smart people are trying to uh, foist on them, especially since the cost is prohibitive and of course it's not revenue neutral uh in many respects people have every right to be very concerned and i suspect that uh, the battle lines are now being you know significantly drawn if kinder morgan doesn't pass good night to canada's energy industry good night to our number one you know leader in exports and to a, to a large extent higher deficits diminishing of our standard of living and our ability to make sure our social programs are economically sustainable so you know, against all this, uh, you have the siren call of the Greens who uh, think that uh, the world can simply slip into the old days of wearing skins, uh, eating acorns, and, of course, uh, having little fires. Uh, that's just not practical, and they know it. But, it re- I mean, when you describe those things, it really is that significant it can have. If this thing doesn't happen, it can have that big of a, an impact on what we do? It's it. It's over. You know, the federal uh, government is uh, now pushing forward with its Bill C-69, which... For most people, it's just another number and an odd name, but it really means uh, if you want to build a pipeline in Canada, you've got to satisfy X, Y, and Z, and then a whole pile of other conditions, such as social conditions, such as gender conditions, such as making everybody happy. No one's going to invest money in, in pipelines and take that kind of risk. And then, if, especially if they see the federal government, which has absolute authority, sort of sit back, languish, rag the puck, maybe run out the clock, and allow uh, uh, you know uh, uh, the BC government, which knows it doesn't have uh, you know, uh, you know, a, a proverbial pot to do something in and to throw it out of, or a window to throw it out of, but is nevertheless holding this up. If the federal government can't exercise its own authority and its uh, reference, its recommendations, and its approvals of pipelines are aren't worth the paper they're written on, then I don't think you're going to see much investment in many of the resources here in Canada. And that's what what's really at play here. We are a test model. We are the soft target for the green agenda globally, and unfortunately. Uh, we have a lot to lose, a lot more than people are aware of right now. But they're starting to get a signal of that right now, Scott. With these higher prices, there's a real connection between green energy, blocking pipelines, and the price you're paying just to make ends meet. We only have a few seconds, but if this doesn't happen, if all you're describing were to happen to the worst-case scenario, prices are going up to, you said, $1.35.9 tonight, two, three, four years down the road. What could we be looking at for gas prices? Well, you'll still have to use fossil fuels. Everyone else will be using it. You'll be looking at buck uh, seventy-five a liter or more. I don't know how much more of an imposition, and the federal government uh, plans to ensure that everybody's paying a minimum of an additional seven or eight cents a liter on gasoline. Um, the world supply of oil has been restricted to a large extent by OPEC, uh, and there has been a lot of investment in fossil fuels 
so you're going to see a lot of uh, you know quite a bit of pressure on oil prices right into 2020 i think we'll look at uh, 150 a liter being the new normal certainly here in the gta and uh, the golden horseshoe and you guys in hamilton dan mctagg senior petroleum analyst at gasbuddy.com always appreciate the time sir thank you for doing this tonight oh thanks for having me scott that is uh what do you say after that? If we're now looking at a dollar seventy-five or something like that as the norm for gas, man, because no, one, we're not getting raises. Not not everybody. Not everyone works for the government. Not everyone's on the sunshine list. Not everyone is now getting huge raises every year. It starts to add up. With everything else, might be time for our prime minister to be a little more aggressive and a little more active. If what Dan is saying is the case, it might be a little more, like a little time for our prime minister to get a little more engaged in this than rather trying to toe the line on both sides of the fence and accomplishing nothing. We will see. There's a meeting coming up. We'll see where that leads. You're listening to the Scott Radley show weeknights from six to eight only on 900 CHML. If I was to ask you to picture in your mind, a typical Hamiltonian, could you do it? I'm thinking probably not only because how do you how do you whittle down a whole city down to one person? It's, we are not a homogenous city. That would be impossible to do. But what about the city itself? Could you, in your mind, picture who we are as a city? Do you know much about who we are as a city? Do you know if we have more old than young or more rich than poor or more men than women or single than married? Do you, what do you think of that? Do you, do you think you know who what Hamilton is that way? Well, a five-part series started in The Spectator today that is answering a lot of those questions. It is called All About Us to look at Hamilton from the census numbers, a deep dive into those numbers to find out who this city really is, what this city is, but it's more who this city really is. The guy who's behind it, the man who did the work in this, his name is Steve Bust. He's an award-winning reporter from The Spectator. He has a shelf full of national newspaper awards and Ontario newspaper awards. Uh, You've read his stuff in Code Red. You've read his stuff about concussions with football players. Uh, This is now his latest project. He joins me now. Steve, thanks for doing this tonight. No problem, Scott. What, uh, I was going to say, what does this tell us? But before we even get there, why do something like this? What is the, what are we hoping to find when we dive into the numbers like this about this city? Well, you know, uh, first of all, I think people have a fascination with numbers, period. I mean, uh, that's partly why we conduct, you know, a census throughout the country. I mean, that's something that dates back, you know, centuries, if not millennia. Um, just our, you know, our, our need to, to collect numbers about ourselves. So, so I think that's interesting to begin with. And, and, uh, um, but I think it's also, you know, obviously there's lots of important reasons why we want to have accurate numbers about ourselves for um, political purposes, for taxation purposes, to know what we do, to know uh, what's happening to us, to know how our uh, our society is changing over time. And, and so I, I think that there's a lot of value in that. And so then when you look at it and break it down into, you know, uh, smaller and smaller chunks, um, you know, it really helps paint a picture of where we live, whether it's our country, whether it's our province, or whether it's uh, the city that we live in. When you started looking at the numbers, and maybe I'll ask you the question I asked off the top, when you pictured what Hamilton or who Hamilton was, you probably had, everyone does, probably had some sort of idea. Did the numbers match up with who you thought Hamilton was? Well, you know, uh, I, I guess I had a little bit of an unfair advantage because, um, you know, when we did the original Code Red project, um, you know, uh, based on census, you know, part of that um, 
project looked at the social and economic uh, data of our city down to uh, the little chunks of the city that, that we'll call either neighborhoods or properly they're known as census tracts. Um, so, you know, we, we did that exercise based on the numbers from 10 years ago. And so I already had sort of an idea of what the city looked like from a social and economic standpoint. And so uh, really this was more about seeing, okay, so what's happened in the intervening 10 years? Um, we couldn't really use the census from 2011 because of um, what the Conservative government did in, in abolishing the long-form census. So uh, really that one was kind of tossed out the window. So really this was our best chance to to get accurate numbers that compared apples to apples. And so um, it was really more about seeing, okay, so 10 years on, have we changed? And um, unfortunately, we, we, we haven't really changed as much as we might have hoped that we would have done. Um, so uh, to sort of just expound on that a little bit, um, you know, really we have two separate cities. We have this uh, sort of inner city, the, the former city of Hamilton, the, the lower part of the city and, and the mountain. Uh, and we have these sort of five suburbs that were sort of glommed onto it, you know, Stony Creek, Ancaster, Flamborough, Dundas, Clanbrook. And really it's a tale of two different cities because they look very different, um, unfortunately. Um, and I say unfortunately because, um, you know, some of the, the less better outcomes, whether it's related to income or poverty, uh, racial diversity, um, you know, there's a real gigantic gap between uh, the old former city of Hamilton and the five suburbs. Okay, as people, and I want to, I don't want to pick on with some of these things because there's, and we'll have to do them quickly, but there's some, uh, there's so much interesting stuff in this. Over the next five days, uh, the topics, by the way, who we are, where we live, how we got here, what we do. And how rich or poor are we? Those are the five days today. First was in the paper today, which was who we are. And we're going to go through a bunch of these very quickly, Steve. First one up. Uh, the You talk about the, the change in the two, um, the two places. The growth in the suburbs has been much bigger than the growth in the inner city over the last 10 years, correct? Yeah, and that, and that one's, uh, I think, the one that would surprise people because there's a lot of attention paid to, you know, downtown, downtown development, you know, uh, influx of people from Toronto to... Uh, you know, the GO station and, and attracting people. And the reality is, is over the last 10 years, you know, 97% of the growth in Hamilton has taken place in the five suburbs. Yeah, that that would be a surprise. I, I think not many people would have expected that. I think people figured everyone was moving downtown. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Steve Bust of the Hamilton Spectator about a new series that is in the spec, started today, five-part series called All About Us, and it's the story through census numbers, through diving into the data of who Hamilton is. And as I say, not what Hamilton is, this is about the people, who we are in this city. Steve, just before the break, we were saying, to the surprise, I think, of a lot of people, it's the suburbs that have been the growth area, the biggest growth area over the last decade. I would have expected otherwise. But there's another thing, that was in today's paper, there's one coming up that I am. I was shocked by this one. there Because I think there's a widely held belief that most of the visible minorities who are in this city are in the old city, and a lot of the Dundas, Ancaster, Glenbrook are pretty homogenous and pretty white. And that's true to some degree, but I was shocked to find out that Ancaster is now 22% visible minority. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're right on both counts. Um, there is a lot of homogeneity. Uh, I mean, I think 
Dundas and Flamborough are something like 94%, well, white. I mean, uh, you know, there's only like 6 to 7% visible minorities in those communities. But you're right, Ancaster sort of uh, interestingly bucks the trend uh, for a couple of reasons, because in the places where there's lots of visible minorities, generally the lower inner city, incomes tend to be lower and poverty rates tend to be higher. Ancaster is the richest of the five suburbs, and yet it has, you know, a relatively high rate of visible minorities, which suggests that the that the visible minorities in Ancaster are, are the ones who are um, financially successful, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the one thing this does, and it's it's a fascinating thing that you stumbled upon, it does, I think, raise the challenges of sweet, of painting with a broad brush. Because when we talk about visible minorities and we kind of th- lump it into a, well, they're probably more disadvantaged, which is sometimes the perception. It's not always the case. It is the case in a lot of cases, but it's it's tough to then say, to do anything very, very broadly right across the city. Yeah, and, and uh, again, you know... Um, at the end of the day, you know, some of the best measures are income and poverty, and, and, you know, that's part of the reason why I left that part to the end, because, sure. uh, you know, that's the one that really stands out, I think, in, in showing the, um, the real disparities across the city. Let's jump uh, to our work for a minute. And again, these are things that uh, some stuff was in the paper today. It's a five-part series. Some will be coming up. People can read in much, 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 much more detail about this. These are long pieces and very much in depth. But a lot of us, a lot of people from this city commute somewhere else to work. I mean, it's a big number of people who are leaving town or going somewhere at least half an hour away to go to their job. Yeah, and um, so there's, uh, there's two things. Um, there's a, a tremendous you know, number of people who are commuting outside of Hamilton, so uh, be that as close as Burlington to, to, to Toronto. But I think the real shocking one is the uh, commuting times, and so... Uh, something like one in eight workers in Hamilton uh, commutes more than one hour each way to work. Wow. Which is just, I mean, it's got to be soul-sucking to, to do that every <laughs> yeah, day. I agree with you. Um, I agree. That's, I mean, that's an enormous amount of time. And, I, and also what jumped out at me from that is how few people use public transit to get to work. Yeah, substantially less in Hamilton than uh, across the rest of the province, I think. Um, provincially, 15% of people take public transit to work. In Hamilton, it's only 10%, um, which may or may not be good news for proponents of LRT. I don't know. Maybe they might see that as an opportunity. Others might say, why waste your money? I don't know. Well, that Steve, that was, that was what came to my mind. And I don't know if through this you are becoming uh, a, a someone who is lobbying for a particular change or otherwise. But it does raise the question, if only 10% of people are using public transit in the city, and yet the huge numbers are having to commute a long, long way, should we be using more money, more investment for intercity travel and, and public transit than intra-city transit and public availability? I, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, and, and I, I don't think there is one silver bullet, because there's also you know going to be a range of people who use both. So, for instance, let's say... Uh, and there's an, there's going to be an example in the fourth part of a woman who lives in Dundas and works for the CBC in downtown Toronto. So, you know, part of her trip is by car to the Burlington GO station and part of her trip is on public transit through the GO train. So, um, you know, there's going to be these, these hybrid situations and, and you, you know, there's going to be people who commute and need public transit to get to another community outside of Hamilton as well as those who 
you know, I think we think we tend to think of it as one or the other. You know, people either drive to work or they take public transit to work or they or they live in their community and work in their community. And and we've got all of these different scenarios here. And so I don't think there's going to be like one magic bullet. We only have a few seconds left, and I wish we had more because the the, the last section uh, is about money. You said that. Uh, and one of the really interesting numbers that jumped out at me is over the past 10 years, our median income here in Hamilton jumped 25%, 55000 to 69000 per household. Is that, that sounds like it's a good thing. Yeah, but again, we're back to, if you were to look at it on a, a you know, place-by-place basis, um, you know, the, the income in the, in the former city of Hamilton is about half of what it is in Ancaster. So you've got, again, these huge disparities um, you know, that we just haven't been able to bridge. The, uh, the series is called all about us. Uh, it is, it is really terrific. If you are interested in your city at all, you're going to want to sit down and read this because the numbers are fascinating. The anecdotes are really interesting. Uh, Steve Bust is the guy who's behind it. You can read it today and for the next four days, four more after today. Steve, really appreciate you doing this. Sorry, go ahead. One last plug here, because uh, the whole series is actually online right now, so you can actually go online and see all five parks, and we have uh, interactive maps and and graphics. So, uh, um, you know, those who uh, don't want to wait for the paper to arrive on their doorstep, go to the website, and uh, you can march yourself through a five-day interactive uh, project. Steve Buse from The Spectator. The series is called All About Us. Thanks for doing this. No problem. Thank you. Uh, go give it a read. Go online, thespec.com. You can find it there. Well, well, well worth your time. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. A little bit of breaking news this afternoon. Just as the show was starting, the Hamilton Ticats sent out a press release announcing that Kent Austin, former coach, now the vice president of football operations, is no longer the vice president of football operations. He is stepping away from that and is becoming a consultant. What does that mean? I don't know. But I know someone who might. His name is Rick Zamperin. He is the sports director here at 900 CHML. He's actually down at uh, First Ontario Centre for the Bulldogs game just about to start. Uh, Rick, you heard this around the same time that everyone else did. What do you make of this? Well, I'm uh, on one hand surprised, on another hand not so surprised. I'm surprised at the timing of it. Uh, you know, the CFL draft is coming up. Ken Austin, as VP of Football Operations, would have had a huge hand, and probably still does have a huge hand in Hamilton's draft plans. While I'm not surprised, uh, coming from that avenue of, <clears throat> you know, this is a with Kent Austin now solely the VP of Football Operations after relinquishing the head coaching duties last summer to June Jones. This was a, I don't want to say a top-heavy front office, but there was a lot more weight to it with Austin just doing the one job. And uh, yes, it's an important job, but when you have a general manager and Eric Tillman there and an assistant GM, uh, an assistant uh, director of football operations and Sean Burke, you have a a national uh, scouting director and Drew Elamang, I think this is uh, or was an opportunity for the Ticats to look at their front office personnel and say, do we have a cost save here? Can we still do what we have to do personnel-wise with one less person uh, because <clears throat> there's there's no doubt in my mind they're going to be paying Ken Austin a lot less to be a consultant than the VP of football operations. You're, if I'm understanding what you're saying, though, that would be that he didn't necessarily step away from this but was given a slight nudge. Is that, what, is that your belief or your suspicion? 
Well, that's, you know, I, I kind of suspect that it might have been a mutual thing. And this is, you know, whether it's one foot out the door or not, it does give Ken an opportunity to look at other opportunities. Well, whether it's in the CFL or the NCAA, I know each and every offseason there's uh, coordinators and coaches and, and GMs and personnel from all over the, uh, the continent looking for uh, better people for their front office. And, and maybe Kent went to uh, uh, Scott Mitchell and said, hey, you know, this is an opportunity that I'm looking at doing to jump back in. Or maybe he wants to get back into coaching, and this is that that opportunity for him. See, that's the, you just touched on something. I've always had the impression that Kent Austin sees himself as a coach. And, and when he stepped away as coach, when things were going really badly, I, you know, I still felt like it was with some gritted teeth that he did not really want to do that. I think that he sees, I, I believe he sees himself as a coach more than as a front office guy. I 100% agree. When you are a head coach, when you're a quarterback, and here's a, you know, a former quarterback in this league, you're in control. You like to be in control. You want to be in control. You thrive on that control. And being the VP of football ops, the, the de facto GM, the head coach, you are, uh, you know, the, the uber leader of the Hamilton Tiger Cats. You had basically 100% control over what, uh, what players came in, which players came out, who started, who was riding the bench, who was on the, the taxi squad, uh, squad or the practice roster. Now, as solely the VP of football ops relinquishing, as I said, that head coaching uh, duties to, to June Jones last summer, June Jones came in uh, as a consultant initially as an extra pair of eyes when this team was 0-6 or 0-7 and uh, and suddenly was the head coach and now was making the decisions on the field and roster-wise to say, hey, here are the guys that I want to play. And I think, uh, you know, that and obviously in a, a couple of other things uh, really forced Kent to take a step back and say, I'm no longer in control or, or wanting or having as much control as I would want. Uh, maybe it's time to do something else. It really is a switch of positions. As you say, June Jones came in as a consultant and then became coach, and sort of his power has grown considerably, and yeah. the complete opposite has happened. Some places, you just sever it right away. The Ticats, I think, did it a little more gently, perhaps, but it's it, it, it's essentially the same thing. It, it's it's as if Kent Austin was removed quickly and the scab was whip, ripped off early or quickly. It's just been over much longer time. Yeah, very much so, and I think... Uh, you know, I think the Ticats were somewhat smart in keeping him around and not just saying, okay, you're out and June Jones is in. I think there, there was a, a process that June Jones had to go through to, uh, you know, reacquaint himself with the CFL game, obviously get to know this roster. And keeping Kent on board for that transition period was absolutely huge in my mind. It'll be interesting this spring to see how he and Jones and Tillman and the rest of the crew uh, continue on. Well, when they brought in June Jones, nobody knew if he could even win a game. I mean, nobody knew if he was going to be able to figure the CFL out, honestly. It's been a long time since he was here. So it sounds like Kent Austin became the safety. Let's keep him around just in case. Exactly. And, not, you know, when Jones became the coach, I didn't necessarily think that they were going to say, uh, you know, Kent, you're the guy again. I think once they made that decision, whether or not they were going to keep June Jones, I think they were basically made up in their mind that, that Kent was not going to coach Again, and I think he knew that too, um, because it would be terribly hard, especially going 0 and 8 last year before Jones came in, to go back to Kent to, to you know to save his fan base. Uh, you know, Kent is is our coach again. I think that would have been a, a big and hard and bitter pill to swallow for the fan base. So, I think this is just the evolution of this team, and uh, you know, I'd, I'd be 
you know, I'd be surprised either way if Kent stuck around for this entire 2018 season or if he, you know, halfway through the year said, hey, I have an opportunity at, you know, school A, B, or C, and, uh, and he just shuffles off. L- I literally have five seconds, so just give me one number. What percentage do you give it that Kent Austin finishes the year in Hamilton and isn't somewhere else before this CFL season is over? I'm going to say 75% that he stays the whole year. All right. Rick Zamperin, enjoy the hockey game tonight. Thank you for squeezing this in at the last minute. Appreciate it. You got it. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. I want to tell you the story. I want to bring on Neil Ridley uh, to to talk here. Neil is a Niagara Regional Police Officer. He is going to be running on Monday in the Boston Marathon. Neil, thanks for doing this tonight. Thanks for having me. Uh, you, how did you, before we get into your sort of the, the real part of your story, how did you become a runner? Why did you become a runner? Um, initially I, I, I kind of got into running just to lose weight. Um, it was just sort of something that I had picked, I'd done a little bit when I was in high school and, uh, sort of later in my years as weight started to pile on and, uh, um, good food and <laughs> lack of activity, I, <laughs> I realized that, uh, this was probably the best, uh, for me to continue on this road so um i uh started doing a little bit of running and uh I, I was at i was at a point where i could hardly even run to the end of the street and back and uh just kind of persevered with it and as time went on the distances got longer and longer and i could start to see the results and uh, and as that happened it was kind of part and parcel at the same time when i was uh, applying to the niagara regional police service to to get hired so did you, uh, do you like, or did, did you at that time like running, or were you just a guy who, when you started something, you wanted to set some goals, and so, you know, a half marathon seemed like a thing to do, or around the bay, or a marathon, like, was it a, was it a burning passion, or was it a, I want to, if I'm going to do this, I may as well do it for some reason? I, I think, um, for me, I don't know if I can speak for everybody, but the actual fact of getting up, putting some shoes on, and going for anything over a couple of kilometers um, is daunting, or, or... And I, and, I, and, I, and I still hate that point. I still hate getting up, putting the shoes on, getting dressed, going outside. But as you continue in that activity, um, you kind of get this, this runner's high. It's, it's, it's a true feeling of endorphins. And the after, after the run feeling was, was the greatest. It's the feeling of accomplishment. It's the feeling that you did something. Um, and as that continued, obviously, you could see you know, physical changes and then distances got better and and as, and as I was sort of advancing in, in, in running, it was like, oh, I'll challenge further distances. If I can run five kilometers, I'm sure I can do 10. And then it turned into challenging some half marathons. And then um, it went from a couple of half marathons. They were just runs to complete. They weren't runs that I was racing. I went and did the, around the Bay in Hamilton, I think it was back in 2013. Did it for charity, raising some money for, for my mom and, and cancer. And, uh, and then realized that that was uh, a long distance, 30K, and did it all wrong. Didn't do it with nutrition, didn't do it with any water. Felt I was going to pass out at the end of the race. <laughs> and then I kind of thought that I really need to take this thing a little more serious and figure out how to run properly. But you got close enough so that you started to believe that you could qualify for Boston. I think the cutoff time is 3.15, and you started to get close to that. Yeah. And that became yeah, the was. thing. It was. It was... Um, I, I after around the bay, I, I did my first marathon and I finished it in three hours and thirty minutes. And I was like, okay, I I I have got the idea of what the distance of a marathon is in my head, and I know that I did it. I just did it to complete it, so I think that I can challenge a Boston 
qualifying a marathon. So what did I need to do? And I needed to get a, a sub three hour and 15 minute time. Um, I knew the pace for that. So I, I started researching marathons, talked to some friends, um, did a couple of them, came extremely close and then found that I said, okay, the fastest one in this area um, at, at that time uh, for me was uh, Erie Marathon in September. I, uh, this was September 2015. My, that was my plan A race. My plan B race was to do the Hamilton Road to Hope uh, November the 2nd and um, didn't make it. I did the marathon in September, got exactly, oh, I got three hours and 17 minutes. I didn't make it to the Hamilton Marathon. Well, and okay, so let's get to the story because you are, as you say, you are a Niagara Regional Police Officer and in between the Erie Marathon and when you had already signed up and paid for and were preparing to do the Road to Hope, you get sent by your dispatcher to an apartment building in Fenwick uh, for what? What was the call? Um, I was uh, I, I was uh, that uh, that area police officer that uh, that evening. Um, so it was in my it was in my zone, and I was dispatched to uh, a, sort of a welfare check, uh, uh, distraught male in an apartment building that had been uh, making um, some um, making some comments uh, through uh, uh, phone to a to a family member. And uh, so I, I initially it was just sort of checking on his welfare. I wasn't even sure that if anybody was even at the apartment or even anybody was in the room because it was coming from a cell phone. Um, we had received information that, uh, you know, that uh, the individual may have some weapons, um, but just check on his welfare. And at that point, my partners had shown up. We entered the apartment building, did the initial uh, search for the uh, apartment, got the apartment number, kind of cleared out some initial uh, surrounding apartment um, tenants. Um, and just kind of kept eyes on on the apartment. And for a while, you're in the hallway chatting with this guy, who is the person that was at the other end of the phone or was being talked about. And at some point, you've been having this conversation with him, and at some point, he says, okay, I'm going to come out. What happens? Um, yeah, he, uh, this is, uh, uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to process, a, for what I guess policing would call, a, we're going to effect an arrest on, the, on this individual. We had uh, previously discussed... Um, from a distance, um, I, I was uh, behind. A, uh, I was in a hallway, and he was sort of behind. Well, he was in, in his apartment behind the door, and we're kind of shouting backwards and forwards to each other so we could hear. And the understanding he was going to come out unarmed, and we were going to uh, arrest him and, and take him to the hospital so he could seek some medical attention uh, for for some of the issues that he was dealing with. And uh, he did exactly what I asked. He opened the door, came out towards me, um, but subsequently had uh, concealed a weapon on him and. Uh, uh, we ended up engaging into uh, what would, I guess, what would be described as a as a gunfight, and um, I was struck. Uh, sorry. Basically, when you say you engaged in a gunfight, he pulled out the gun and shot and hit you, sure. which led to a gunfight. But you were like immediately, yeah. you were hit. Yeah, I uh, I uh, on 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 seeing the weapon, I had uh, turned to my partner who. Um, and uh, as that had happened, I, he was in a position of uh, that he couldn't uh, have a clear vision of what was going on. And um, at that point, as I was yelling, uh, "Gun!" Uh, at that point, I guess I, I, I didn't know it was a bullet, but it felt like uh, a Mack truck had hit me. Um, and I uh, was literally taken off my feet and uh, sort of collapsed on the ground. At that, at that point, I uh, realized what was going on, and I could hear. Uh, gunfire being going off and realizing that uh, 
this is, I guess this is, this is where I died. And, um, you really thought that that was really what went through your mind. You thought that was it for you. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I wouldn't say your life flashes between your or flashes before your eyes. I think that it was more of a feeling of what are, what are my kids going to think of me? What are they, what are my children going to think of my life? Was it, did they know me long enough? Um, you know, you know, what, what is, what's my wife going to do? That was sort of the, the sense that kind of immediately came to my mind. Um, couldn't, I couldn't breathe. It was bleeding. And by the grace of God, my, my lungs filled up with air. And I was just like, you know, amen. And then I got up um, and uh, sort of reengaged. And, you know, the th- at that point, the threat was neutralized. Um, and so I, I, I was seeking medical attention immediately. Where, where were you hit? Um. It was through my uh, my shoulder, um, but the the round it was sort of <laughs> uh, you know I can laugh about it now I guess but uh, <laughs> well not really but it it it, it, it went through my shoulder but it exited through my neck and, and I guess that, I guess it's kind of hard to visually sort of um, describe but the way my neck was was tilted. It, um, was in such a position that it gave a straight line for the round to uh, to not penetrate um, any further into my body cavity, and it kind of exited um, through the top of my neck and off my chin. There's a lot, Neil, of, and you know this. I'm not. Uh, I'm not saying anything you haven't either heard or considered. But there's a lot of stuff in that part of your body: your spine, your esophagus, your jugular vein, your carotid artery, your brain. There's a lot of stuff that that bullet could have hit. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm fully, fully blasted that didn't. And it, somehow, somehow it missed. It hit you, but it missed all those important things. Yeah. Wow. It actually went under underneath a, underneath one of my veins and uh, and just missed my esophagus. But I think it was a, a couple of millimeters. You said though that after you got shot. And, and I mean, it, it's not a small wound. D- you actually got up and were trying to get back into this thing? Yeah, you, um, we, we're, we're, we're trained well, I think. Um, and I think that in these circumstances, when you have mere seconds and it's extremely life or death, you consciously revert back to your training and what you've been taught and what you've been um, put in in sort of like training scenarios, so to speak. We all know that they're not like real when you're training, but you always think that this could happen. What am I going to do when this happens? How am I going to react? And um, as as a well trained officer, you you that's your job. You know, you nobody else is coming. You know, you're, you're it. Um, so you need to continue doing what you're doing uh, to save your life, save your partner's life, and to protect the public and uh, and anybody else that uh, you know could could be in harm's way at that time. But it just it amazes me because uh, say if if the thought has crossed your mind when you were hit that you were about to die there, uh, to somehow get back into action, it, it 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 seems like a remarkable thing for me. It seems, I mean, again, maybe it's training, maybe it's instinct. I don't know what it is, but I, I don't know that most people would leap back to their feet right away when that happened. I I had a real strong feeling that um, 
you know, I, 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 I felt I was sort of being lifted. Like I was on like a, um, on like a, like a, like a puppet on strings. I felt like I was just being lifted up and had this sense that, you know, I'm not done. This isn't, this is not how my life is, is, is supposed to be. Um, you know, you, you need to can continue doing what you're, you're swore your oath to do. And, uh, but I, I mean, it's, it's worst case scenario and you, nobody knows what's going to happen. You, you just, you hope and you, you have to rely on your training. So it, I, I mean, that's what, that's what, sorry, go ahead. No, no. And I mean, you obviously, you go into surgery, uh, you must've heard something from the doctor, uh, either before or probably more likely after the surgery about how close this probably did come to that worst case scenario. Yeah, I think there was a, a <laughs> I think everybody involved, from my wife to uh, my, my brother, my family members that were immediately at the hospital, to the doctors, the nurses, everybody that I, even my coworkers, um, my uh, my chief at the time, Chief McGuire, and they they were all shocked. The doctors were shocked. It wasn't there isn't an illogical, um, reasonable expectation. I would say for for me to be one talking to, to be up and, you know, with a smile on my face and glad to be alive after something like that. Um, no, statistically I shouldn't be here. And statistically, if I am here, I should have extreme life altering injuries given the circumstances, but I was blessed that I wasn't. And, and that kind of pushed me forward in my running when I got back into, I mean, I had, I have, I've had several surgeries afterwards. Um, but Laying around the house, trying, well, not laying around the house, but I mean, sort of not not doing something on a daily basis. I, I felt that I needed to get back on the road and, and, and just get the feeling of self worth, um, bit of purpose, um, get those endorphins kicking back in again. And it was probably um, it was almost a year after the shooting that I had uh, decided to sort of lace the shoes back up again and. and uh, kind of hit the road. And not to be flippant, uh, but I would think that once you've had that happen, whatever pain you're going to feel or whatever discomfort you're going to feel on the road when you're running, relatively speaking, it's not really much of a balance. You know, it's interesting you say that because, you know, Boston's always been a bucket list item for me. I was trying to do it um, before I got shot and, and I guess... I had a plan B to go to the Hamilton Marathon afterwards. The distance and the pain of running, um, obviously, is nowhere in comparison to to what I've gone through. But there's there's a sense of pushing yourself to uh, to not not to the limit, but to near to the limit and maintaining that. It provides a sense of clarity in your in your conscious mind of thinking. All right. I'm, all I'm going to do is for the next three or four hours, I'm just going to focus strictly on this running, and your subconscious mind kind of clears everything out, and you just feel a bit of a peace with doing that. So, yeah, the pain of running it can be a negative thing, or you can use it as a tool. Do you? Uh, and I don't know how you, this is maybe a stupid question because I don't know how you wouldn't. Oh. But do you feel like you have a second chance at things? Uh, you you must. Yeah, I, I guess for me right now, like I mean, there's, there's, 
I, I'm personally in sort of a situation where I'm I, I, I'm I'm running for goals and I'm running for uh, um, for the enjoyment of it, but there's a post-traumatic stress and all these anxieties and depressions and things that kind of come with going through a, such a traumatic incident and, um, you know, dealing with all of that and, and having the sense of, yeah, I have a second chance. I think the guiding thing in all that is what now becomes your purpose. And I think that that's where I'm kind of in the moment. I'm, I'm trying to find what that purpose is and what my life is, is, is need, needs to be. Um, that incident on October the 10th, like, and even pun is intended, I guess, literally knocked me out of my seat. Like, it was something physically worst case scenario as a police officer, but I was blessed to come out of it. I was blessed to, um, be, you know, even talking to you on the phone right now. So that has to have some sort of meaning behind it. And what is it? And how are you going to implement that into your life and into your runs? It is an unbelievable story, and um, hopefully, well, I, I'm sure it's going to get better and better. You got Boston on Monday, and you know you finished Boston. Now, the problem is, Neil, that uh, this is a bucket list item. What do you do next? You already done your bucket list now. Well, <laughs> you got to find you know, I, now. You got to find a new bucket I, list item for running. I have a I, uh, in August. I'm I'm tackling a 100k, 100 kilometer race in uh, in um, New York, and then in November. Um, I have an Ironman that I'm going to tackle in uh, in Arizona. So those are my sort of uh, two items that I want to keep pushing myself to see how far I go. And then these, and I, I mean, for your listeners, I, I'm not anybody who's uh, an age group, and, and that kind of means I, I'm not somebody who's, uh, you know, r- running races to win. I'm, I'm running them for personal satisfaction and, and an accomplishment. So, yeah, Boston's a great, it's arguably the, the greatest race for an amateur sport, you know, and I've been I've been blessed to have punched my ticket to go to it, and and Monday's going to be a, a great time. I'm going to be running it with my twin brother, and uh, and we're and we're and we're going to run it for fun. You know, we're going to run it and enjoy every moment of it because it because uh, literally I I shouldn't be here. So, Neil Ridley, uh, listen, really appreciate the time. Great luck on Monday. Thanks for telling your story because it really thanks, is amazing. And um, look, as I say, we'll be watching to see what you do on Monday. But thanks for the time tonight. Cheers, Scott. All the best. That is, uh, you know, it's just how do you how do you how do you not get blown away by that story? I mean, he was he put your thumb and forefinger as close as they can possibly get. That's how close he was to dying, and that was not that long ago. And I complain every night about doing my five k run. Maybe I should be reviewing this story every night before I get on the treadmill and go. Oh, okay, I should probably just you know suck it up and stop being such a whiner. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.